0: In this third episode of our Advent series, Trinity Forum president, Cherie Harder, speaks with philosopher and author, James K.A. Smith. Together, they'll help us consider what it means to be creatures that are bound and formed by time, and how each of us is shaped by the stories that precede us. I think to be a creature who is living into the fullness of
1: being human means grappling with, reckoning with, and sort of gratefully receiving the way that our past, our history, our uh, embeddedness in time has contributed to this unique identity that, that God has made us to
0: fulfill. And it's hard work. As we mark Advent, a season of waiting, of reckoning with time, and of hopeful longing for the fulfillment of the kingdom, Smith helps us rightly locate our hope. Hope is possible precisely
1: because you don't think the present is all there is. And you also don't think that humans are the only agents in this, that the God of the cosmos who fires the worlds with love is out ahead of us, which is precisely why there can always be new possibilities. I think, that, I think that's radical for us to think about personally and individually, and I think it's radical for us to think about collectively and communally.
0: This is an edited version of the online conversation we held on September 23rd. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder.
2: Welcome to all of you joining us for today's online conversation with Jamie Smith on how to inhabit time. Today, we'll explore what it means to be a creature of time to live in a way that understands the constraints of the past and the contingencies of the future etched upon our present moment, to learn what it means to love well that which will be lost, and to develop the habits of attunement that enable discerning timekeeping. And it's hard to imagine a more engaging or expert Sherpa for this journey than our guest today, Dr. James K.A. Smith. James, or Jamie, as he's known to his friends, is a philosopher and professor at Calvin College, the editor-in-chief of the renowned Image Journal, and the award-winning author of numerous books, including Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, Desiring the Kingdom, The Devil Reads Derrida, You Are What You Love, Awaiting the King, his excellent work On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts, which we got to host him to discuss just two years ago, and his brand new release from Brazos books, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future and Living Faithfully Now. In addition, his popular writing has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Books and Culture, First Things and many other publications. And last but certainly not least, I am very proud to say that he is a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. Jamie, welcome.
1: It's always great to be with you. Thanks so much, Cherie.
2: It's really great to have you here. We'll start at the very beginning. And you begin your book with a personal story of your own struggles with depression and the ways that health and healing necessarily involve dealing with a sense of of temporal dislocation. And you later mention that knowing when we are can change everything. So what does it mean to know when we are and why is that so important?
1: Yeah, I think the and I, I opened the book in that way in many ways, because I would say that experience of spiritual reckoning that therapy and counseling offered was almost like my first opportunity to practice this sense of temporal location, like discerning when I am to, in, in order to understand who I am and I, I think what what had happened before that, and what I needed to work through was I didn't really fully understand who I was, and maybe not even fully understand what I was called to be, because I hadn't yet really reckoned with the stories I carried inside me, the 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 histories that were buried in me. That were nonetheless very present and active but they were sort of like working on me in unconscious ways and so i didn't i didn't have an account of that i didn't have a handle on them so i would say i you know i i kind of lacked self-knowledge because i didn't know when i was i hadn't done this hard work of grappling with the story I had lived out, what I have gone through, what I have undergone. And and I think that's just, I think that's an endeavor for all of us as human beings. I think to be a creature who is living into the fullness of being human means grappling with, reckoning with, and sort of gratefully receiving the way that our past, our history, our, our goodness in time has contributed to this unique identity that that God has made us to f- fulfill, and it's hard work. I, I will say, if if the if that opening sort of therapeutic case is is a, is an example, it's a sign that this doesn't come naturally to us. It's something we have to take on.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, how does one become temporally dislocated in the first place? Like, what happens?
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of like Aristotle says there are many ways to miss the mark <laughs> and <laughs> one to hit way to hit the bullseye. So I, I think there can be different kinds of diagnoses of why this why we get temporally dislocated. Let let me let me suggest a couple. First of all, I do think that there are a lot of facets of contemporary culture, maybe especially contemporary American culture, as many of us experience it that sort of mitigate against this kind of awareness now some of it is because we are invited to just be incessantly distracted from any kind of contemplative reckoning with anything so that that could be one problem but there's also something sort of built into late modern culture that i think tries to transcend or or escape time so Ironically, one of the ways that we can get disoriented in time is by the hubris of imagining that we are not conditioned by it, that we can sort of transcend it, that we can surf time, or as you uh, suggested in in your opening too, or we get tempted to think, oh, time is something I can master. Time is something I can control. Time is a commodity that is there for my mastery and deployment. I think all of those, what they do is they sort of encourage a a naivete Mm -hmm. about the extent to which we are not masters of time as much as we think. And we certainly don't float above time. We are historical creatures. My identity has this sort of genealogy to it. And uh, I'm a product of history, even though I am also the sort of person who is, you know, we have agency and we can impact history. I think facing that reality of our temporal embeddedness is, is a bit countercultural in some
2: ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a couple of different forms of dislocation in your, in your book that I wanted to ask you about, because in many ways, they're sort of counterintuitive. One of them is nostalgia, you know, in that it's sort of, it, it, many of us might think like, oh, this is actually an embeddedness in the past, an orientation towards the past and a familiarity with it. And and you've made the argument that it's actually something very different. It's It's a dislocation, you know, a misplaced sentimentality. How does nostalgia Disconnect us from what you called spiritual timekeeping, which we'll dig into in a, in a second.
1: Yeah, no, I'm so glad you noted that. I, I do think, don't you think it's quite a powerful narcotic on offer right now? And and I think so. Maybe, maybe we could put it this way in some ways it's not a question of whether you relate to your past it's a question of how you relate to your past right so even if even if you're telling yourself mythologies that you're above it all and you're you're immune to history and so on you're not so in that case your relationship to your historical nature is going to be disordered because of illusion i i think what goes on in nostalgia is of course it is a way of remembering and and I think to be human, we have to remember, but it's how nostalgia remembers that is disordering. And And w- the problem with nostalgia is not that it remembers. The problem with nostalgia is what it actively forgets. As you said, it's kind of a sentimental, what goes on in nostalgia is we sort of romanticize a rendition of a past, we 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 concoct a version of the past that has usually this feel of kind of the golden age, the good old days, the best of times. You know, college was my was the time of your life. Whatever it might be, there are whole industries that kind of feed off of this nostalgic impulse, but but it's disordering because in fact it is very selective. It's edited it often sort of rubs out and erases the aspects of our history that might be disordering our loves, that might be disordering our habits. And so nostalgia is, it looks like it's a form of remembering and it is, but it doesn't, it, it forgets half. And and it's the half that's forgotten that might actually be what is most carried by us right now that we have to reckon with. Does that is that make sense?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you on the flip side of that, the orientation towards the future. And and one of the reasons why this occurred to me is it seems like there are a lot of new books coming out that invoke time, but in a very different way. And it's all about time is running out you know, the hour is now, there is an invocation or a spur to radical, even extreme action. And so I wanted to ask you about that. I think at one point you call it doomsdayism, the urgency of the present oriented towards the future. Tell us more about that and how that might distract from what you've called spiritual timekeeping.
1: Yeah. So what, what I think is healthy, creaturely temporality, (laughs) spiritual timekeeping, let's say, is not just this sort of reckoning with the past. It's actually reckoning with the past for the sake of answering the call to live forward, to live into a future. And I, I actually think at the heart of the Christian faith is a futural conception of being human and of being the community. But in the same way that you can think about the past, you can relate to the past in disordered ways. I think culturally, we also see forms of being oriented to the future that are primarily oriented to the future in terms of fear. In other words, fear becomes the governing mode in which I anticipate and expect my future. And so you can get as, as you, you said, a kind of doomsdayism, where now it's just this countdown clock to apocalypse, to disaster. And I, I don't mean to say that we shouldn't be on guard, right? And 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 planning for for what's coming. But there's a difference between that sort of doomsdayism, which is almost like invested in apocalypse, versus, well, to put it very starkly, I guess, hope. That is so different from hope. Hope is a way of being futural in which your expectation is not cut to the measure of what you can see in the present. I think that's the real game changer. I think I think most forms of doomsdayism are are kind of locked within a limited purview where you take what you have in the present and all you have is the ability to extrapolate that into a future whereas a biblical vision i think a christian vision of the future hope is possible precisely because you don't think the present is all there is and you also don't think that humans are the only agents in this that the god of the cosmos who fires the worlds with love is out ahead of us which is precisely why there can always be new possibilities. I think that I think that's radical for us to think about personally and individually and I think it's radical for us to think about collectively and communally. Yeah.
2: So returning to the past for just a second, you had a phrase that I really loved in your book to describe the way that our our histories our habits, our past kind of helps form us. Uh, you called it wearing time. In some ways, there's, you know, I th- probably a riff here off the idea that the body keeps the score, but I'm sure most of us, if not all of us who are watching today, have have histories, have aspects of our past, have unwanted habits that we know have formed us in ways that we, w- we would not wish, we would like to undo. Going back to like your idea of spiritual timekeeping, how does this help us to recognize and potentially even heal from histories that have wounded and could cripple? How, how do we think about redeeming the wounds rather than simply continuing to suffer from them?
1: Yeah and and your your question is is it's at this intersection where you'll notice i keep sort of dancing back and forth in the book because you can you could take up that question in a very personal and individual way right like what does this look like in my life and then you can also think of it on a communal and collective register for our life whatever us we might be talking about i i think the the sort of the the beats, if you will, of this movement towards renewal and restoration and redemption and transformation is cultivating the awareness, first of all, right? So doing the sort of contemplative work, hitting the pause button on our frenetic absorption in the moment to sort of step back and try to take stock of who we are because of when we are, and where we've come from, and what our history is. And and as you say, that might mean now reckoning with habits of being that I have acquired over time that I want to, I realize, is not in line with the kingdom of God. I want to undo. So, okay, then what what do I do? Well, I think that awareness becomes an occasion for new intentionality for me to try to start giving myself over to rhythms and rituals and repertoires that are reformative, right? That that are helping me to unlearn. This is why I really do think that there's a bridge that's built from you are what you love on the spiritual power of habit to this book. Now we're thinking about the temporal dynamics of it. I would say the thing I think I would add now though, at this point in the new book is, and I hope this doesn't sound, well, I'll just put it this way. I think I have an overwhelming appreciation for the patience that's required for transformation. That And, and this itself is very countercultural when, when we live in a kind of quick fix culture. I think making oneself available to God's grace with intentionality also requires the gift of God giving us a patience to know it takes time to be transformed, right? In the same way that it took time for me to be formed and in and in some cases malformed, it's it is going to take time for me to be transformed. And God's not surprised by that. God is not scandalized by that. God plays a long game. He is steadfast and faithful to his covenants. And I hope that would feel like a liberating truth to live into as we aspire to be more like the image bearers that God has made us to be
2: you know, this reader certainly saw lots of bridges between your current book and you are what you love as well as others great and one that kind of you know that that is going to occasion this question is just you know the idea that you, that you are what you love but when we kind of overlay um, our own temporality on that that means that whatever we love, we will lose because we are creatures and we are mortal creatures. We will pass. And the things that we love will also pass, but that also feels very wrong to us, you know, internally, at least it does, it does to me, you know, that one, one's yes. more oriented towards wanting to to love and to prioritize, you know, what's enduring, what will, you know, what will remain. So, I'd love to hear you kind of reflect on, you know, as an Augustinian philosopher who believes that you are what you love, what does it mean to lo- yeah. to learn to love what you'll lose?
1: Yeah. So much of this book is about receiving the gift of creaturehood mm-hmm. and affirming the good of creaturehood. And even maybe if it doesn't sound too, Strange to say so, receiving the gift of our mortality. Overarching all of this is a deep, abiding trust in God's steadfastness and God's eternity. But it's also then recognizing this distinction between the creature and the creator. <laughs> and And it's interesting, you know, you can you can still get a lot of religious impulses, Christianized impulses that effectively kind of resent being a creature and want to arrogate to ourselves this the sort of stability and eternality that is only true of the Creator. Whereas in fact, I think instead, part of the humility and patience of learning how to be a creature in time, is learning to love what you loo- you'll lose, which is to say, not all loss is tragic. Some is, I don't want, right? The, the rending of the fall that we still experience is, is, is a, 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 an affront to, to goodness, truth, and beauty. And, and that's why we have Psalms of Lament. But there are other kinds of sort of losses that are not tragic. They are just sort of the arc of a being who lives through time and history. And if we if we sort of cling to those temporal ephemeral things as if they would never pass away, well, Augustine says that's the recipe for idolatry.
2: Mm-hmm. Then
1: you, because now you're treating those things, those good, beautiful, created things, but you're treating them as if they were God and they're not, they're creatures. So there's something about learning to receive the good, beautiful things of creation with a bit more of an open hand. Mm -hmm. So they they are received with gratitude to enjoy while we have them, but trying to cultivate a posture such that we are not utterly bereft when they very naturally become something else or pass away. And and, and we don't have to just think of objects, but uh, like I think of, for example, as a father, you know, toddlerhood with children is such a remarkable, just incredible, you know, enchanted time. But it doesn't last forever. It does not last forever. And, and, and sometimes, by the way, I also recognize you're in the midst of toddlerhood and you're like, oh my gosh, is this going to last forever? But there's, it doesn't last forever. And there, it would be disordered. It would be sort of clinging for me to just try to keep like nostalgically looking back to that as if that was the best that we could have experienced. Because I'm actually now shutting down the possibility that in the next moment and in the next season, God has new gifts to give me in those relationships with these good growing creatures who are becoming different. I I think learning to hold these good, beautiful things with open hands is part of this practice of spiritual timekeeping.
2: You know, along those lines, I had had something happen two days ago that made me think about our our upcoming conversation. I was taking a walk with a friend. We stepped outside. It was hot. She she complained about how muggy and stifling it was. And I made some throwaway comment about, oh, well, it's going to rain tomorrow. And, you know, it's going to be cooler from here on out. And she responded by saying, oh, well, then I'm going to cherish today. I thought, well, now that's interesting. You know, just a moment ago, she was complaining, but the ephemerality of it made her value it in a new way and was sort of yeah. curious, you know, kind of what yes. she thought about, yeah. does our very temporality or ephemerality help us to, to better love or more wisely love the gifts that uh, we have now?
1: Yeah, it, although I think you also gave your friend a gift because you just reframed, ever so slightly. And that reframe sort of changed her own posture to it. Right? I think that's exactly right. It's one of the reasons why in the book, I say the arts are particularly powerful, I think. And, and, and our friend Mako Fujimora talks about this a lot too. There's something about the arts have a capacity to sort of reframe the ephemeral so that we come to that moment of cherishing it, even though we're, we know that we're going to lose it. And I think that sense of embracing, there's it's almost like the goodness is intensified if you can get to the place where you realize that this is given for a time, right? And it is given to enjoy to its fullness for a time. I think that kind of receptivity and availability to the moment is the kind of in the now that is biblically faithful. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You mentioned earlier the bridges between this work and You Are What You Love. I, I also saw certainly some parallels or bridges between this book and and your last one on the road with, with St. Augustine. And Great. one of the themes that seemed to kind of be central to both was that of orientation. Yeah. locating oneself in the proper place, whether that's through cartography or archaeology, which you mentioned in both right. works. And so it, it made me think like, okay, you've had these works of orientation, both through space on the, you know on a road trip with St. Augustine, and now time. So we've, you've kind of traversed the, the space-time continuum. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> after all of those wanderings, what have you learned and where have you found yourself?
1: Wow, that's a great question. I, I don't know if you could feel it. I do feel like this was a book I could only have written in middle age, which is which is kind of confirming uh-huh. one of the parts of the argument, which is there is a there are going to be kinds of insight and illumination and understanding that are only available, once I've undergone time, like I couldn't rush it. No matter how smart I am, I wouldn't be able to rush my way to this understanding of myself or of God or of the world because I had to sort of go through it. And I think where I am and when I am now is somebody who probably is a little less confident in all of his own analyses (laughs) and and but and yet even more confident and and rooted in the steadfastness of god's love that that i i think i know on a register that is Deeper and more elusive than anything I would be able to articulate, which is which is probably why I find myself in this moment really kind of drawn to the contemplative traditions of Christian spirituality. Henri Nouwen, Saint Teresa of Avila, Thomas Merton. I, I, I just I find there is a a vision of how to relate to the God of the cosmos that has a expansiveness and a quietness that my younger self wouldn't have even have been able to understand and probably would have been a little suspicious of. And so I hope I'm hope I'm a little more humble than I used to be. I hope I'm a little more compassionate than I used to be. And if I can grow up to be a little bit more like Mr. Rogers, it will have been a life well lived.
2: (laughs) That's great. Finally, as promised, Jamie, want to give you the last word.
1: Mm. I'm actually going to, I want to send you all off with a prayer that I first heard, prayed at a church actually in, there in D.C., Church of the Advent, where Tommy Hinson was rector. And this is a prayer that comes from the Anglican Church of Kenya. And I'll, I'll read just the first bit of it. O oh God of our ancestors, God of our people, before whose face the human generations pass away, We thank you that in you, we are kept safe forever and that the broken fragments of our history are gathered up in the redeeming act of your dear son. Friends, whatever the fragments might be in your history, God is making a mosaic.
0: Godspeed.
2: Jamie, thank you so much.
0: Thanks everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening in to today's podcast on time and hope with James K. A. Smith. This was our third episode in our series on Waiting with Wisdom. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. This has been an edited version of the online conversation we held on September 23rd. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources.